It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Obviously, for the last few weeks, the almost the entirety of the news media's attention when it comes to foreign policy has been spent on the Middle East situation. And in a lot of ways, that's understandable. Thousands of people dead and uh, no signs that this war shows any signs of uh, mitigating anytime soon. But an interesting thing happened. I was reading the Wall Street Journal over the weekend and they did an interview with uh, Natan Sharansky. And, you know, you go down these rabbit holes, at least I do, when you think, oh, gee, oh, Natan Sharansky, and you listen to his perspective on Israeli politics, and you listen to his perspective on what was happening in the waning days of the Soviet Union when he was released as a political prisoner under Mikhail Gorbachev. And then you go back and look at how rosy things looked in the last days of Mikhail Gorbachev and the beginning days of Boris Yeltsin. And then you go back and look at the news clippings of President Clinton and President Yeltsin together, of even President Bush and President Putin. And you wonder, to paraphrase Vito Corleone in The Godfather, how did things ever get so far? Whereas a country who 30 years ago looked to, if not be an ally, at least have the potential to have warm relations. How have they gotten to the point where Russia is either number one or number two on the United States' international enemies list? And as you start to explore that, you can easily see a lot of the parallels behind what's going on in the Middle East and maybe some intersections between those two conflicts. And unfortunately, and from my completely layman perspective, I view them both as having the potential to spiral out of control into a multi-country hot war. Somebody that is genuinely an expert is Thomas Graham. He's the author of the book Getting Russia Right. He's also a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a co-founder of the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Program at Yale University. He was special assistant to the president and senior director for Russia on the National Security Council staff from 2004 through 2007. And in that time, he met Managed a White House Kremlin strategic dialogue. So there's a good chance he may know what he's talking about. Very pleased to welcome to the program Thomas Graham. Mr. Graham, it's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. Let me begin with what, uh, you know, I haven't read your book yet. I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm uh, poised to get a copy. You, the, na- the title of the book is Getting Russia Right. That sort of implies that we are currently getting something wrong or that we're poised to be getting something wrong about foreign policy with Russia or at least our perceptions of Russia. What are we getting wrong or what are we poised to get wrong? Well, I mean, the, the point of getting Russia right was really to, to argue that Russia is going to remain a, a major power and a major challenge to the United States in the future, no matter what happens in a conflict uh, in Ukraine. And for that reason, it pays to go back over the past 30 years to understand how we got from what looked like a, 
uh, a period in which we could aspire to build an an enduring uh, partnership to a a time when Russia is probably the number one adversary that we face on the global stage today, at least in the view of of Washington. Um, So what did we get wrong? Uh, I think the fundamental thing we got wrong back in the 1990s is that we didn't understand uh, that Russia was not so much interested in a a transition to democracy. What it was interested in was restoring its power, being a great power on the global stage uh, and a great power much in the tradition of Russia uh, throughout the the decades and centuries. Uh, And that country uh, has been very much a rival of the United States from the moment the United States itself emerged as a global power at the end of the 19th century. So when we look at how things got to the point that they've gotten to at this point, how did things go so badly post-Cold War? Is it one big incident or is it sort of a death by a thousand cuts where it's a bunch of little incidents that caused relations between our two countries to sour? Well, it's something probably in between uh, in between those two. You know, not a thousand cuts, but... Um, you know, a dozen or, or so over time. Uh, you know, some of them, the responsibility largely of the United States, I think that clearly in the early post-Cold War period, some of them uh, more the consequence of the actions and ideas um, that are held by a Russian president, President Vladimir Putin. And that, I think, is certainly true over the last decade. Um, to give you an example, uh, I think there were two things that the United States did in the 19. 19- 90s and the 2000s uh, that caused Russia to rethink its relationship with the United States. Uh, One was the expansion of Euro-Atlantic institutions, that's NATO, uh, the European Union, uh, into Eastern Europe close to Russia's borders, um, which in a sense pushed Russia uh, out of Europe, something that uh, uh, they resented. And the second were uh, the activities that the Bush administration in particular uh, undertook in what the former Soviet Union, places like uh, Georgia, uh, Ukraine, the Central Asian states, uh, that were aimed at eroding Russia's presence uh, in, that, uh, in, in that region. Uh, and you need to understand that Russians saw this region uh, as a foundation uh, of their geopolitical heft. It, it was what made them a great power. So those two things in particular by American administrations, uh, caused uh, the Russian leadership to reassess its uh, relations with the United States and to push back more assertively against U.S. actions in and around Russia itself. One of the things that I do wonder about is how the relationship did or didn't change after September 11th. Obviously, after September 11th, the focus of the Bush administration and more broadly, the American, uh, the whole American government became going after terrorism, specifically of the Islamic fundamentalist variety. Vladimir Putin has never seemed to have much of a patience for terrorism either. Why didn't Russia become sort of a a natural ally through shared enemies after September 11th, particularly given what President Bush said to the nation that there are essentially only two choices post 9-11. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Which side was Vladimir Putin on? Well, he was on on our side and he wanted to be on our side and we wanted him to be on our side at that point. Uh, 
the problem was that uh, we looked at terrorism in somewhat different ways and we had different terrorist challenges. Uh, for us, as you've already pointed out, it was al-Qaeda. We wanted Russia to help us to deal with al-Qaeda. Well, Russia thought it had a terrorism threat as well, and it was called Chechnya. This is a small uh, republic in the North Caucasus, uh, and um, the Chechens were in rebellion against uh, against Russia at that in, in the 2000s. But Putin and the, Rus- and the Russian leadership considered them terrorists. We thought of them as more uh, as freedom fighters. And so there was a fundamental uh, divide between the way we identified terrorists in the real world. We focused on Islamic terrorists, al-Qaeda, uh, the, the Russians on the Chechens. And the Russians uh, uh, never thought that they got the uh, assistance from the United States they expected uh, in a war on terrorism, nor did we get the type of uh, robust uh, cooperation with the Russians in dealing with al-Qaeda. One of the things, you know, I want to come back to the Chechen situation and ask you about any comparison to the Middle East. But uh, just sticking with with Russia and where we are now, there's sort of dueling narratives that have emerged about Russia, what Russia is doing and what it's been doing since the beginning of this Ukraine conflict. The people that view Russia as uh, a solely the bad guy without any nuance, they essentially spin the narrative that Russia wants to rebuild the Soviet Union and that they are hell-bent on domination of Eastern Europe and they want sort of a a Russian Empire 3.0. The kind of pro-Russia narrative that they're trying to spin, both in Russia and internationally, is that the Ukrainians were slaughtering innocent ethnic Russians, refusing to adhere to the terms of the Minsk agreement, refusing to allow people in the uh, eastern Ukrainian Donbass republics to determine for themselves what they wanted to do, and that the U.S. throughout all this was hell-bent on NATO expansion. Given your expertise and the fact that you've been studying this for decades, sir, are either of those narratives fully correct? The short answer is not expected the answer to be uh, no. I mean, certainly Russia uh, now wants to expand its its territory, and it has a particular uh, beef with uh, with Ukraine that you've laid out uh, in some detail. Uh, but that said, uh, I see very little evidence uh, that Russia wants to expand territorially uh, in the eastern in the eastern Europe. I think Russia also recognizes the extreme danger if it even attempted something like that, since uh, the Eastern European countries, Poland, the Baltic states, for example, uh, are members of NATO. Uh, and any attack by Russia uh, on NATO would bring into a, uh, an operation the so-called Article 5 guarantee of collective security. And the United States would almost certainly get involved uh, in that conflict in a way that uh, could lead to a direct military confrontation between Russia uh, and the United States. Uh, the Russians don't want that, uh, and I think the, the Russians are deterred uh, to, a, to a great extent. When it comes to the Russian narrative, um, yes, uh, there were problems in the Donbass. There were problems with the way um, the, the Russian minority was being treated there, but nothing of the, the scale that the Russians are talking about. It, wasn't, uh, it didn't approach anything that we would call uh, genocide. Uh, there wasn't an effort to... Uh, uh, 
uh, deprived the the Russians of their, their cultural rights, uh, educational rights, and so forth. A lot of that is fabricated to explain uh, a, an act of, of aggression uh, against Ukraine. So what do you think the real rationale is beyond the fabrication? What do you think the real reason Putin went into Ukraine is? Well, I think that the Russians, by and large, are concerned about their security, uh, and they see security in what we call strategic debt buffer zones. Uh, and they were concerned about uh, NATO's growing presence in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, they were concerned about the steps by the Ukrainian government that were clamping down or cracking down on what they would call pro-Russian forces inside Ukraine. Uh, and that is what drove um uh, President Putin uh, to undertake a military operation. But, you know, that said, I think it's important to remember uh, that much of the, the Russian political elite really didn't support uh, a military operation mm. at that point. They knew there was a problem with Ukraine, but they thought it could be solved uh, diplomatically. Uh, Putin decides to invade. And I think that is, comes out, uh, is due to uh, some fundamental attributes about uh, uh, President Putin himself. Uh, he has developed a uh, what I call a messianic view of uh, Russia, of his role in history. Uh, he thinks of himself as a great czar, uh, as someone who expands Russian territory. Uh, he sees Russia as the uh, as the leader of a um, of an anti-colonial movement on an, uh, on the global scale. Uh, he underestimated grossly uh, the extent to which the Ukrainians would resist the extent to which the West would unite behind Ukraine, and he did, uh, to, a, to a, a great extent, the capabilities of the Russian military. So he thought this would be a quick war, it would be over uh, in a matter of weeks. Um, the West would do nothing. Uh, reality turned out to be quite different. And, and what was supposed to be a blitzkrieg has turned into a war of attrition. Well, let me ask you about that. Because, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Thomas Graham, one of the most experienced thinkers on the subject of Russia, one of the most experienced educators, writers, and uh, somebody that's been a diplomat himself. His book is Getting Russia Right. One of the things that I have had such a difficult time with, and I don't think it's for lack of research attempts on my part is trying to get an accurate number of casualties as to how many people have died on the Ukrainian side, how many people have died on the Russian side. Understanding that uh, governments have an agenda in the numbers that they put out there, do you have any idea what the current casualty numbers are on both sides of this conflict? We we can only make estimates. I mean, the governments treat these as closely held state secrets. I mean, the only number that the Russian put, the Russians put out about casualties was way back in September of 20, uh, 2022, and the number was like four or 5,000, a gross underestimate at that point. But when you look at the scale of the, uh, the conflict, uh, if you look at the, uh, the numbers of artillery shells that have been launched against uh, one another, uh, you know, the estimate is that we're talking about casualties in the tens of thousands, um, you know, probably a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand on both sides. So it's a very, um, it's a devastating conflict. Will have long-term uh, consequences for the demographic, 
uh, the demography of uh, both countries. Uh, and the slaughter is continuing as we speak. Is there a way that this ends diplomatically? And is the United States playing any role, even if it's behind the scenes rather than publicly, in bringing, out, uh, bringing about a diplomatic end to this? There is no evidence that anybody wants a diplomatic solution to the problem right now. Uh, the Ukrainians believe that they can get what they want on the battlefield. The Russians believe uh, the same, that they can get what they want on the battlefield. Uh, the United States has stood uh, behind U- Ukraine from the very beginning, uh, providing them along uh, with our, our NATO partners and, and European, ally, uh, European allies uh, with the, the finances and the, the military equipment that they need to maintain this conflict. Um, there is a presidential election in, in Russia in, in March of 2024. We all know who's going to win that election, uh, but nevertheless, uh, Putin is not going to back down uh, and show weakness in his mind uh, when uh, he wants to score a big uh, electoral victory. We have elections in the United States next year. We're not going to back away from uh, Ukraine. Certainly this administration is. Uh, And for the Ukrainian government, uh, they are responding to, to public pressure. Polls in Ukraine demonstrate that the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians want to continue the, the conflict. The overwhelming majority of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine still has the capability of driving Russia out of all the territory that it has occupied uh, since 2014, since the seizure of Crimea. The um, the you mentioned the situation involving uh, Chechnya. Do you see any similarities, and it's fine if you don't, I'm just curious, between the Russia-Chechnya situation and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? How do those two conflicts and relationships parallel one another as far as you're concerned? I mean, there there are drastic differences between those two conflicts. Um, You know, Chechnya uh, grew out of, uh, I think, discontenting Chechnya about oppressive um, policies uh, from Moscow towards the Chechen uh, people. And this has a deep history, goes back into the 19th century. Um, uh, the uh, travesties that were committed against the, the Chechens by Stalin in the Second uh, World War, deporting all the people from Chechen out to Central Asia uh, for uh, a decade or, or longer. Uh, and so that led to resistance against uh, Russia. Uh, in the of the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, and an effort to reorder the political structure throughout the former Soviet uh, space. Uh, what you're seeing in Gaza uh, is really the, the outcome of a, uh, of a terrorist organization that is committed to the elimination of, uh, of Israel uh, as a Jewish state uh, that uh, committed a, a, a what we can only call an atrocity on October 7th butchering 1,400 uh, innocent people, um, uh, a genuine terrorist attack uh, that uh, that Israel and Jerusalem is responding to in a quite forceful fashion at the moment. What, as far as you can tell, is what role is Russia playing in this Israel-Hamas conflict right now? I, there were reports that some of the Hamas leadership was meeting with some of the Russian leadership. And uh, there does seem to be this sort of this uh, alliance of 
entities that the United States isn't too crazy about right now, namely Russia, China, Iran, Lebanon. What is Russia doing with respect to the Israeli-Hamas conflict now? Right, almost nothing that is of, uh, of great significance. And you're absolutely right. There were conversations between Hamas leaders and, and Russian leaders in Moscow uh, in the past week. Uh, those uh, talks focused in many ways on uh, on uh, Russian citizens that have been taken hostage uh, by uh, uh, by Hamas. Uh, you know, probably some other uh, conversations about how things were going and. Uh, uh, and, and what Russia may or may not do in terms of support. But most of the support has only been uh, rhetorical and it's been support uh, specifically for the for the Palestinians. Uh, you know, other than that, uh, Russia has really been noticed, noticeable by its absence as a major player uh, in this conflict. Uh, China, in addition, is a country uh, that has had very little to say about this conflict uh, and not engaged in a major diplomatic way. Iran, of course, is another matter at the very heart of this, uh, and the focal point of our concerns about escalation. Uh, Iran has already said that uh, it is prepared to open up a second front against Israel uh, if this incursion into Gaza, the Israeli incursion into Gaza, uh, goes too far, does too much uh, harm to, to Palestinians. That's the real concern that the United States has now of a, a wider war that grows out of uh, an Iranian response to the, what the Israelis are doing right now. Do you see uh, a realistic danger of a global hot war with all of these people that are currently lined up on opposite sides of the leisure? Uh, Russia, China, Iran, Lebanon, H- Hamas on one side, Israel, the United States, other entities that, uh, you know, that are part of the broader NATO scope, maybe accepting Turkey on the other side of the ledger. I don't think you're going to see a global war. Uh, you could see the the war in the Middle East escalate uh, so that uh, it, it uh, escalates beyond uh, Gaza itself. Uh, we're already seeing um, unrest in the West Bank. Uh, we're seeing unrest in some hostilities uh, in southern Lebanon, northern uh, north uh, northern Israel. Uh, I could see a play out a scenario uh, that leads to a broader regional conflict. Uh, in, in the Middle East that would involve Iran, Israel, uh, the United States to some extent, uh, perhaps the Saudis uh, and a few others. Uh, but it's hard to see that then escalating into a global contract, uh, contest that brings the Russians and the Chinese. And I think that is uh, quite unlikely at this point. Uh, but, you know, a, uh, a wider conflict in the Middle East would have uh, devastating consequences, certainly for uh, the countries in the region, uh, but it would have a dramatic impact on, on energy markets, uh, impact on the oil uh, that is exported out of um, uh, out of the Middle East. So we see a sharp rise in uh, gasoline prices here in the United States. Um, it would uh, uh, lead to, as I said, likely American action as well. And we'd have to be concerned about uh, the extent to which uh, American the troops would be Uh, would be on the ground involved in conflict uh, alongside Israel against various terrorist organizations uh, and likely Iran itself. 
One of the things that we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been increased calls for military action against Iran. Senator Lindsey Graham has been very vocal on that front. Former Senator Joe Lieberman has said the same thing on uh, on a lot of the stations that carry this program. Alan Dershowitz, although obviously not a senator, still carries a lot of weight when discussing affairs as it relates to Israel. He's called for the same thing. How do you see that playing out if the United States were to move forward with military action against Iran? Well, I mean, that's a quite um, dangerous situation for us. Um, you know, we'd have to think carefully about the extent of the, uh, of the military operation. What exactly are we trying to achieve um, and how are we going to achieve and how does military force help us achieve that goal? Uh, you know, we have misread the situation uh, in a number of Middle Eastern states over the past decade or longer. Think about Iraq. Uh, think about what has happened in Libya. Um, so I think that, you know, an administration needs to think long and hard uh, before it uses military force. Uh, it has to have a clear idea uh, of what it's trying to achieve. It needs to have a deep understanding uh, of what the likely reaction is from a country that's going, uh, that, we're, that we're planning on attacking uh, and we always have to have um, uh, an exit strategy. When do we know uh, that we've accomplished our goal? When is the time uh, to leave? Uh, and will we leave under conditions that are satisfactory as far as long-term stability in, in that country is concerned uh, and long-term American interest uh, more broadly in the Middle East? We're talking with Thomas Graham. His book is Getting Russia Right. I know it's late. I'll let you go to bed in a minute, sir. But I just have to ask you this. For a lot of the reasons that you pointed out in the last 15 minutes, the situations in the Middle East are very different from the situations in Eastern Europe. And I'm wondering if you think it was a mistake for President Biden to combine the Ukraine and Israel situations, both rhetorically in that primetime address last week that he did and legislatively in terms of seeking an aid package where the funding is sort of uh, tied together, tied up with one another and asking Congress to vote on both because of the uniqueness of each situation. Do you think the president would have been better off focusing on each conflict individually rather than kind of trying to group Hamas and Russia into this axis of evil 2.0? Yeah, I think it makes more sense uh, to, to keep those separate, uh, to explain clearly to the American public what is at stake in each of those conflicts uh, and why the administration is undertaking uh, the actions that it is in support of both uh, Israel uh, and Ukraine. Uh, you know, as far as the, the appropriations bill is concerned, um, you know, there's some political logic to combining the two, particularly given um uh, the growing opposition in the, the, uh, within the Republican Party to supporting Ukraine, uh, while meaning, uh, while the Republicans remain firm in support of, uh, of Israel, so you put those uh, those two together, perhaps you have a better chance of, of getting the uh, the level of support that you think you you need. All that said, uh, you know it appears that uh, the new Speaker of the House wants to keep, uh, keep those bills separate. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for the administration to proceed the way it wants to legislatively. And that, I think, then throws the onus back on the administration to explain why Israel, why we need to support Ukraine. Um, 
on uh, uh, on the basis of the the those individual conflicts, not bring them together, uh, but explain them each separately. Thomas Graham, thank you so much for the time. I hope we can chat again soon. You're certainly welcome. Have a good evening. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.